Chapter 17 of St. Charles Borromeo, A Sketch of the Reforming Cardinal by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 17 Another Ambrose. I have found in the city of Milan another Ambrose, Don Louise wrote to Philip II. We wonder, did the arrogant governor think that he was another Theodosius? And did he hope he would be more successful in the struggle for supremacy than the Roman emperor? It would undoubtedly have been a splendid triumph to have compelled the successor and the imitator of St. Ambrose to yield. But Charles Borromeo was inflexibly resolved to safeguard the rights of the ecclesiastical over the civil power, but not in temporal things, as had been the glorious champion of the church in olden times. His strength of character was as great, his mind as powerful, his soul as pure and noble, and certainly his courage was as dauntless. He, too, having bid defiance to the pomp and pride of state, would, if necessary, in vindication of the supreme authority of Rome, have compelled the governor, nay, the king himself, to kneel before the porch of the Duomo, barring the entrance to the sanctuary until fitting penance had been performed. Fortunately, this last drastic measure was unnecessary, for although Don Luis continued to persecute the archbishop, annoying and thwarting him on every occasion, even meddling with his correspondence and confiscating the explanatory letters Charles wrote to the Pope and the King. Yet in the end the good cause triumphed. The following extract from a letter Charles wrote at this time to Monsignor Castelli is very characteristic of our saint, and gives us a fair idea of the unruffled calmness of his soul during this long and bitter strife. Milan, September 3, 1573 It grieves me to see that you are all very excited in Rome over the Rocca di Arona. I did not expect, and certainly do not wish, you to take it to heart. I only mentioned it in order that you should understand how strenuously, not to say vindictively, they act here, and not in order that the Holy Father should interfere on my behalf in this matter of the Raca. No, I hope you will not in any way endeavor, either here or in Spain, to compel them to give it back to me. I consider that his intervention will be prejudicial to the interests of the Church, for they might imagine that for the sake of our temporal interest, we should be willing to be silent on ecclesiastical matters. At any rate, perhaps it is pride. I know not. It is my opinion that it would be low and mean even to think of one's own private grievances, much more to say a word to remedy them when such high and sacred causes are at stake. No, even if they take from me not only Arona, but all the rest of the family estates, and deprive me as well of the revenues of the sea of Milan, I should not feel inclined to use spiritual arms against them, or even to say a word of complaint, unless His Holiness expressly commanded me to do so, lest my example might make other prelates timid in the defense of their rights. I have calculated all necessary expenses, and I have quite enough to live upon, so you need not be anxious about me. In the meantime, the governor had both written and sent envoys to Rome and Spain, but at both courts Charles had clever and powerful friends, who were able to unravel the tangled scheme of the governor's purposely involved complaints. Indeed, the senator sent by him to the Pope was seriously injured by a kick from a horse while on his journey. However, he was able to reach Rome, but no sooner did he attempt to plead the cause of the governor and senate of Milan before the Holy Father than he was seized by a fit of apoplexy and died shortly afterwards, unable to utter a word. The papal nuncio at the court of Madrid was at this period Monsignor Ormanetto, Bishop of Padua, and former vicar general of Milan. He was a devoted adherent and loyal friend of the persecuted archbishop. 
After a time, Philip yielded to the representations and arguments of this learned and holy man, and agreed to remove the truculent governor from Milan and appoint him to command the troops in Flanders. Everyone hoped that when Don Luis de Requestens left Italy, peace would be restored, and church and state would no longer be at loggerheads. Unfortunately, an episode occurred that postponed for a time this happy result. The fact that he was under the censure of the church caused Don Luis poignant suffering, not only because his conscience condemned him, but also because his friends and acquaintances stood afar off and looked on him askance. He was not sufficiently manly and straightforward to go direct to the archbishop, confess his fault and his sorrow, and ask forgiveness. Instead, he endeavored in a roundabout and underhand way to become reconciled with Holy Church. He persuaded friends of his in Rome to ask the Pope to remove the sentence of excommunication. They told Gregory the Thirteenth that Don Luis de Requesens had been appointed commander of the Spanish army in Flanders. This was true, but they also told him that Don Luis had left Milan and was on his way to the Low Countries. This was not true, for the governor was still in Milan. Acting on the belief that both these statements were absolutely correct, the Holy Father granted a brief conferring faculties on any priest to whom Don Luis made his confession to give him absolution. Accordingly, Don Luis went to the monastery of the Recollects and confessed to Father Leonard, one of the monks of the order. This priest, having read the brief and acting in good faith, gave him absolution, and the following morning, Requestens attended Holy Mass at the monastery and received Holy Communion. Afterwards, he attended the Holy Sacrifice at several churches, but when Charles heard of it, he was deeply moved, for he did not know that the Pope had granted a brief and that the governor had received absolution. He therefore prohibited all the priests in the diocese from offering up the holy sacrifice when Requestens was present. Naturally, there was considerable agitation over all this. The governor was annoyed, the people were bewildered, and it seemed as though a fresh and more strenuous conflict was about to commence. Charles wrote at once to Rome, and when the Pope heard the true version of the case and learned that Don Luis, instead of being on his way to Flanders, was still in Milan, he was justly angered with the men who had so grossly deceived him. He ordered requestants to give full satisfaction to the archbishop according to the canonical law. Don Luis complied and frankly asked pardon, probably because he was weary of strife and wished to be at peace with God and man before undertaking his new duties. In his inmost heart he appears to have always cherished a great respect and sincere admiration for Charles. Two years later, when Don Luis lay on his deathbed, mentally worn out by the strain and anxiety caused by the frequent defeats of his troops, and physically wasted by disease, he wrote to the archbishop again, asking him to forgive the past and begging the saint to pray for him. Needless to say that on both occasions Charles generously complied with his request. The chancellor also rested under the ban of excommunication. He not only did not repent, but laughed and jested at the athenemas hurled at him. His pleasantries, however, soon ceased, for a strange melancholy took possession of him. The doctors tried every known remedy, but in vain. Nothing could rouse him from the state of hopeless despair into which he had fallen, and it was only after six years of terrible mental trouble, coupled with extreme bodily weakness, that, feeling that he was about to pass away, unabsolved, he sent for Charles and implored his pardon. The archbishop related this incident in the following letter to his friend Monsignor Speciano. Milan, April 16, 1579 I wish you were here, so that you could see for yourself how false are the reports that have been circulated about me. They say that the king's ministers detest me. 
Well, today the Lord Chancellor, who is at the point of death, sent for me, confessed to me, and received from my hands the bread of life. Afterward he asked my advice about making his will, and later on signed it in my presence, and he conferred with me for a long time on his most private affairs. Charles wrote to Castelli, I really do not know whether I have more faith than you, but I always feel that one must place all one's confidence in God. I think, nay, I am certain, that the less help and support we receive from men, the more certain we are of heavenly consolation and assistance. God always takes greatest care of those who are forsaken by men, and he manifests to them on these occasions, in fullest measure, his infinite goodness and mercy. End of chapter 17